right, Bitcoin accumulation country? You know what time it is. You know what day it is. I'm your host. This is Coin Icarus, or Phil, and this is the Fun with Bitcoin podcast. We are in season three, and this is episode 31. Hope everybody's having a great week. Thank you very much for joining me. I've got a really great show with fellow podcaster John Vallis. Now, I've been following his podcast uh, on and off uh, since he started, and I really like his style of interview. And uh, we actually met um, on the uh, quarantine and uh, drinks from uh, Bitcoin Magazine and, you know, just totally hit it off and, uh, yeah, had to approach each other to uh, sit down and have a rip about Bitcoin. So that's what we did, and it was absolutely awesome. So before we get into that, though, we are going to take a look at dollar cost averaging and Swan Bitcoin. For anybody who is interested in dollar cost averaging and who wants to be purchasing Bitcoin but doesn't want to be spending their time constantly watching the charts and listening to traders that they really have no idea whether these people are credible or not, and you kind of just want to put this in kind of in a passive sleep mode where you're simply just accumulating and hodling, being able to transfer that Bitcoin out to your own private address. So if you're interested in doing that and that falls in, in your wheelhouse, then you are looking for Swan Bitcoin. With Swan Bitcoin, the three main takeaways are we've, we can do automatic withdrawal from a bank account, automatic purchases of BTC. You can time them based on your uh, when you receive your check. You know, you can do it, uh, you know, let's say once um, you can do it once a month. Um, or you can do it per pay period as well. Um, there's lots of options for you to be able to customize how you purchase. And you could automatically withdraw to your uh, your chosen address. So if you're interested in a Bitcoin-only platform um, that is doing the, uh, the great work of helping onboard people, then you definitely want to check out Swan Bitcoin. I'm going to have the, uh, the link to their website in the show notes. Hope you're sitting comfortably. Buckle up. Because here we go. Here is my chat with the host of Bitcoin Rapid Fire, John Vallis. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for joining me on the Fun with Bitcoin podcast. I've got a fellow podcaster with me uh, that I recently um, got to really meet on. I'd say that was the uh, the Bitcoin magazine, the the quarantine, the drinks and quarantine talk. Drinks and quarantine. Yeah, that's right. And uh uh, he does the uh, the podcast Bitcoin Rapid Fire, which is a Bitcoin only podcast, and I definitely suggest people go check it out. And if you don't know who I'm talking about yet, I'm talking about Mr. John Vallis. John, thank you so much for coming on my podcast, man. I really appreciate it. Coin Icarus, it's a pleasure, long time coming, and uh, I'm super pumped to be with you, man. Awesome, awesome, very cool. Yeah, me too. I've, I've, like I said to you before the recording, you know, I, I've, uh, I've checked out your podcast here and there, and I've always, I always read, you know, the, uh, you know, the comments and everything like that, and people really love your stuff. And because I've checked you out a few times, um, I just find that you're, you're really a great speaker, and you're able to, I, I think that you're, you're able to draw people in. So it's awesome to, uh, you know, to get you on here and uh, talk about Bitcoin with me. So. Well, thank you, man. I, I really appreciate that. I echo it back to you. And um, yeah, like I said, I'm just excited to to jam with you, man. Cool. Should be fun. Okay. So look, so I mean, I, I personally, I do not know your rabbit hole story. I'm, I'm sure some listeners do, but I don't. And mm-hmm. I, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to know, you know, before you got into Bitcoin, why you got into it? Like, how are we having this conversation now, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll try to, uh, you know, it's funny about telling the rabbit hole story that Every time, or 
every time I tell it, I find that there's new details that I kind of forgot were part of it before. Um, but I, I mean, I guess it goes something like this. Always been a curious person. Um, you know, always wanted to know more about uh, uh, everything pretty much. And then, you know, and I smoked, you know, weed in, in my teenage years and, you know, and, and but I, I always would be like, I was very much into fitness as a teenager too. Right. So in high school I was, you know, going to the gym a lot and, you know, I was taking care of my body. That's always been a big priority for me. But when I had all my workouts and my work done, I'd smoke weed and chill with my girlfriend and just, we'd have kind of conversations about, you know, death and the universe. And, you know, we, we just got it, got off intellectually on each other and other ways, of course. <laughs> and, uh, um, and then I, it was sometime, you know, and I was an avid Amazon, you know, person. I'd be buying, you know, boxes and boxes of books on a regular basis about, you know, pharmaceutical industry, the Israel lobby, ec- tales of an economic hitman, you know, like trying to piece together an understanding of the world, I guess, as, as many of us do. And uh, doing so started to make me feel like um, the world wasn't in such a good spot. And that that's like, I've always been a pretty content and happy person, but I was starting to realize that a part of that happiness was like kind of ignorance is bliss sort of thing. Like I didn't, you know, the world wasn't what I thought it was, is what I'm trying to say. It was far kind of darker than I had uh, learned growing up, unsurprisingly. And, um, you know, some, I think around this time I had come across movies like Zeitgeist and other things on YouTube that are talking about, disparate things from religion to banking to you know all of that kind of stuff and i was i was disheartened i was like man this is this is bullshit you know the 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 way that the world is working and i didn't see a way for myself like i didn't see a way for it to be changed you know the forces were so kind of gargantuan that i didn't see how these could be turned around and so um i thought like the best pursuit was just to kind of manage me and the, the form that that took at the time was to take my, you know, humble savings that I'd accrued over, you know, my early working years and put it into gold um, to protect myself against what I felt was, you know, debasement of, of currencies all over the world. And, uh, and then kind of pursue as like my primary intellectual pursuit, uh, spiritual, for lack of a better term, and, you know, I, I know that word is has a lot of baggage, but, you know, kind of spiritual pursuits. Like I wanted to learn what was kind of beyond uh, our normal consciousness, you know, learn, you know, what we're we're going to talk. Yeah. We're going to talk about that. Sorry. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, so (laughs) as part, as part of this journey about learning about how the world works, you learn about, you know, how power works and who's in power and you learn about ancient cultures and stuff like that. And there's this theme of all of them having some kind of ritual or ceremony or method of altering consciousness. And I always thought like, why, like, why, why is that such a critical, uh, important aspect of these advanced cultures in many cases? Uh, And so that led me down that rabbit hole. I went down to the Amazon uh, in 2008 and 2009 for about four months each time to spend time with a shaman there and learn about ayahuasca and have several experiences and, and things like that. And then um, I just, yeah, and this was kind of the period where I lost myself a bit because I'd always simultaneous in high school uh, was learning about uh, 
finance and the stock market because I wanted to be rich and I thought that's the way to go manage money get money so in in high school I was reading you know Benjamin Graham's security analysis and all of Warren Buffett's books and you know all that kind of stuff and um, even though my university years I had kind of dramatically shifted from being like super materially oriented to th this more spiritual track that I was on but I still wasn't willing to let go of that dream I really felt like America was on the decline in terms of global economic superpowers China was rising and I thought I'm just gonna go over there and see what I can make of myself so I came back from the rainforest for 10 days basically just switched out my bags and bought a one-way ticket to Shanghai and thought I'd figure it out you know I just you know see see what happened and so I, I lived in a hostel for a few weeks uh, and I was applying to um, all these different wealth management firms in the city because that was the place those were the places that were hiring foreign talent you know and you know wealth management in offshore what they're called markets is very is you know it's a, it's a financial sales job really it sounds illustrious like oh you're managing people's like investments and savings which you are but your prime 99 of your job is sales you're right you're selling financial products um but anyways I, I was having no luck and i'm a huge ufc and mma fan and i got on a forum and uh i you know because i wanted to go watch one of the ufc fights that was happening that weekend like four weeks out after i'd arrived or something and i wrote the, the forum admin and i said um you know where's this fight going down how can i attend blah 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 and this guy uh, wrote back and said it's on this address you know come there's a there's a gang of us watching fights all the time so i thought great i go there by myself um or actually no there a brazilian guy from the hostel that i met he came with me and i ended up just taking a seat and watching the fights and the guy sitting next to me i ended up striking up a conversation with him turns out that he was the one who answered my my query on the forum so we started chatting asked me what i was doing i told him the story i just told you and he said oh that's funny i'm recruiting for the largest wealth management firm in the city and you know do you want an interview and so i said yes and went and got the interview and um and worked in that uh, capacity in that company for about three years really hated it um you know all those feelings that i had, had kind of against the system and thinking that things were structurally wrong and that kind of stuff were only amplified and so i left um 2013 i believe uh and i started studying natural medicine i studied that for um i got a three-year program and then i worked and went back to shanghai and worked in that capacity but the reason why all this is relevant is because at some point mm -hmm. i remember hearing about bitcoin and i was hearing about it because in my pursuit of kind of learning about psychedelics dmt of course is one of the substances that you you hear about and the silk road became you know was obviously notorious for a place where you could acquire um drugs and dmt was available there and so my kind of my buddy who was interested in this stuff with me told me about it and uh, we looked at it and we you know and it was like oh you got to get this bitcoin stuff to to buy the dmt anyways we never did it but after that time, or shortly after, I started hearing Andreas's videos and very interested both politically and financially and all of that kind of stuff. Actually, more so politically, because I, I didn't I didn't see it as an investment opportunity. I wanted it so bad to be a thing that existed in the world to disrupt 
central banking and the fiat currency system that I like I wasn't my investment hat wasn't on at all. Anyways, of course, like many people um, follow it and follow it, but don't dive in for a while. Mm -hmm. And then on a trip to Bali in 14, 2014 or 2015, um, I uh, we were in Ubud, which is kind of up in the mountain part of Bali, where lots of natural health and yoga stuff going on. And at a co-working place, we, I checked it out one day because I was interested in tech and startup world. And I uh, there was a I just missed a talk about Bitcoin and I was like, damn it, I, I really want to learn more about that stuff. And this girl said, oh, that's cool. Like, you know, why don't you and your girlfriend come to dinner with me and my boyfriend tomorrow? We'll talk all about it. I'll get you set up. And I was like, oh, perfect. She was like, yeah, here's my email. Email me tonight. We'll set up a time. Amazing. I email her. No response uh, the next day. And so I was like, I was crushed, right, because I wanted to learn about <laughs> Bitcoin and I wanted to see what was going on and I wanted her to fill me in and I wanted to get set up. And then the next day I was down in the uh, like the, the coastal part, a very touristy area. And uh, there was actually a retail store on the corner next to where I was staying that was like a Bitcoin store. Like all they did was they, they got you set up with a blockchain.info wallet and helped you buy like they would take your American dollar currency and they'd help you buy Bitcoin. So I went in there. It took like an hour for some reason. I I can't remember why. Gave him a uh, gave him some money. They set me up with a wall, and there I was. You know, uh, had had my first sets, and uh, then from then on, you know, the typical story where you just keep learning and keep learning and keep learning. To this day, you know, I'm still my my rabbit hole story is still ongoing, right? Because yeah. it's just it, not only is there always more to learn. But impossibly, like I think, it, I feel like it's not possible. My conviction could be higher, but it ends up being higher, like week to week, month to month, as we go forward. So, uh, you know, I, I know that was a bit of a long one, but that that is basically how I came to it all. Oh no, man, that that was absolutely awesome, and I obviously have to go back and, and ask you now a bunch of questions because <laughs> because I, I I feel like we have more in common than uh, th than I thought. So okay. Uh, fitness and weed that that's definitely interesting. So, I mean, I've never been much of a fitness buff, but like I've always, you know, I've always skateboarded and I've always snowboarded and it's something very interesting because I've always grown up with a lot of people who spent a lot of time at the gym and I, I find it funny that they, you know, it's like they won't smoke cigarettes, they won't do anything else, but they'll smoke weed. So <laughs> it's kind of, it, that, that's like that when you said that, I'm like, ah, that, okay, that, that kind of makes sense. You know, it's like, it's, <laughs> it, it's the, uh, you know, it's the way to chill, um, but the other thing I wanted to ask you about, because you said you were a huge book reader and you were piecing, uh, you were piecing the world together. Mm -hmm. um, so, do you have any specific books that that like stuck with you from that time? That like to this day, people still like if they ask you, you're like, that's the book you need to start with. Start with this and then move on. Not really, but partially that's because I have a horrible memory for that kind of stuff. But you know. I, I, Perhaps the ones that I just drew from memory, because I, you know, I ended up ordering probably hundreds of books, and I just remember maybe the last big box I got ten years ago plus was, you know, there was one called APAC, and it was all about the the Israel lobby in the U.S. And then there was um, Tales of an Economic Hitman, mm -hmm. which was by John Perkins, I believe, and he he um, just details the way in which you know people. Uh, basically agents of different uh, economic and financial organizations like state financial organizations from all over the world 
go all over the world and they broker deals with um, less less financially well off, less wealthy countries, you know, and they 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 get them basically they get them into debt. And then when they can't repay their debts, they they leverage that to some for some benefit for the uh, the country that originally issued the loan, which still goes on today. I mean, like China's Belt and Road, there's been a lot of criticism of it for doing something very similar with, you know, like countries in Africa and stuff. They, you know, they say, we're going to lend you a bunch of money and then they can't pay. And they say, OK, we'll just give us your ports and your resources and your all this kind of stuff. And uh, and so so th- those were interesting books, but I. I can't I can't pinpoint one that was really like, oh, that that one helped piece it together because th- there's so much to piece together. I don't think you can find it all in one book. So I'm afraid um, I don't have a great answer on that one. That's OK. No, it's a hey, listen. You know what? I I always like to the reason why I ask it is because I've I've read so much and I don't even Do you know. have one. Uh, exactly. Like I was just going to say, I don't even know which one I would suggest to anybody. Uh, to, to be perfectly honest, but it, like one of the first books I would say that really, really got me to start like um, uh, questioning things or just deciding to think a little deeper uh, was um, a book called Many Lives, Many Masters. And that was a book, I believe he was a therapist and he was doing like past life regression therapy or something. And essentially, you're you're reading his notes about people talking about their past lives in their current life. Interesting. So it's very interesting stuff. And actually, I'll, I'll I'll go I'll backpedal a bit. I think I have two answers. One is like way back. So when I was, I think twelve ish, eleven, twelve years old, I was always playing out on the streets with the neighborhood kids, right? Like just playing basketball or whatever. And um, one of the neighborhood uh, girls who was my age came showed up on the street one day and she had skipped a grade right like she went from grade four to six or whatever and uh you know when you're a young kid you fucking hate school so i I was i was like (laughs) how the hell did you skip a grade and she was like i don't know i just read a lot and i was like whoa 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 you just read a lot like that's it and you're you just become smarter and she was like pretty much and i was like Oh, okay. So like, I was like, cool, thanks. And I went home that day and I went to my dad's bookshelf and my dad had like a, like a modest bookshelf with a few hundred books. And they were, they were like, you know, business and strategy and, you know, a couple like hero's journey type tales. The Celestine prophecy was nuggeted in there. And then there was like some psychology stuff. And the first one I picked up was called Hidden Power Unleashing Hidden Power, Unleashing the Power of Your Subconscious Mind, I believe was the, the I've title. absolutely heard of it. Yes. Yeah. And um, just kind of pulled it out of the dark, like, sounds cool, cool. And I go down to the basement and I read it. And uh, it was, in hindsight, it was like a pretty influential book because I'd never really thought of my mind in the terms that it was uh, describing and, and exploring. And so realizing that like there was another kind of subcomponent of my mind that could either be an ally or an enemy and there was ways to leverage it to become an ally like that that was pretty uh that was pretty influential for me for sure and then later on during this kind of trying to piece together the world period one of the ones that it might have been early in the game like as a fun because you you wonder like why is America and Canada like Canada? And why is Europe like Europe? And why is Africa like Africa? And why is China like China? Like what, what accounts for the different degrees of development and culture and prosperity and all this kind of stuff? And so 
I came across uh, Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, right? Because that is a way of looking at the development of history through the lens of a couple extremely influential processes that allowed for whether it's more innovation or whether it's you know uh, better weaponry or or more dense cities and the fostering of diseases and so he looked at history kind of through the lens of of a little bit luck but these things that meant that the reason why we're the world kind of looks the way it does today is because of these variables and how they interacted with each other and shaped the world and so that was cool then you're like oh interesting and then you you build on top of that to piece together why things are the way they are in the modern world but um those two books you know in hindsight those were probably pretty influential what was the second one guns guns germs and steel germs by, and steel yeah. yeah okay cool and it was by jared diamond he followed that up with a book called collapse which was looking at uh, primarily if memory serves the um the fall of easter island right so easter island had this you know yep developed uh, civilization that's right oi statues and stuff and then Just, it kind of dis- disappeared right yep that's right and, and he looked at it through the lens of you know what causes a civilization to collapse and it's because it's an island it's a great microcosm and a great case study and he looked at resource depletion that led to conflict that led to disease that led to led to led to until when 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 like modern explorers finally showed up there's you know a few people there no memory of uh, like the richer cultural past that they had you know so you know if you watch ancient uh, if you watch ancient aliens uh it was the aliens that were over there it's it's so well, brutal man you know ancient ancient well, ancient uh, aliens is is kind of is brutal but i i do like the or i'm i'm fascinated by the thinking um, and research of guys like Graham Hancock, who mm-hmm. have gone all around the world to, you know, the most ancient sites, whether they be in Egypt or Turkey or Peru or Easter Island, and notice a lot of kind of aesthetic similarities or technological or aesthetic similarities in their writings or their iconography or their architecture. And, you know, he he makes the he hypothesizes that uh, there was a ancient, a more ancient civilization prior to, let's say, like the earliest ones we're aware of in Sumer and ancient Egypt. Oh yeah, and uh, that that was advanced, but which was destroyed. And he makes a case it was, you know, a flood brought on by you know asteroid hitting the ice caps in the northern part of the world and sea level rise by 500 feet and you know all that jazz. And uh, but the survivors spread out across the world to Asia, to South America, to wherever. And only with kind of a piece of the like only a, a vague memory and so, only some knowledge or wisdom from the civilization from which they originally came, and they restarted anew, and that's why you see a lot of um, similarities in architecture, technology, uh, art, like that kind of stuff mm-hmm. in the disparate ancient sites around the world. Who knows? But I find it interesting. Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, it's interesting that you, you talk about how, you know, bringing all of those together and showing their commonalities. Because back when I was in college, I did a, um, I, I did a, like a, I guess it was like a project on uh, demonology. And I had the, the idea essentially that all the different magical languages were really all just the same. They all reverted back to one magical language, which essentially goes back to the ancient Sumerians. Right, because they were the first for us, right, for our civilization, because Samaria disappeared and then we sprang from supposedly Babylon, right? Mm. But um, essentially, 
the the mystic teachings will say okay like spring from that time so yeah. the, well the yeah. symbolism the, the the symbolism that that's used today so it, it was a very interesting project but to your point um there was a lot of commonalities and it's it's just interesting how different people in different places um can come up with the exact can conceive of the exact same ideas right the exact same divine ideas the same ideas of higher consciousness without ever having speaking you know they, they've yeah. never spoken they've never exchanged ideas but yet that they, they were able to tap into that you know infinite intelligence so to speak yeah and, and and that's a perfectly plausible explanation as well and i think that's the one for what i was referring to about kind of graham's work that's the one we would default to absent kind of any uh evidence or yes even belief that something came earlier in prehistory because it, it doesn't fit our linear models right to think that like there was an advanced civilization in our distant past because we see things as progressing and modernizing and developing technologically as we move forward but and and so that's why i say i mean who knows but i find it very interesting and I, i've been to egypt and explored you know the the pyramids and the ancient temples and all that kind of stuff and it just it boggles the mind to think that you know because egypt and sumer were relatively contemporary with each other and i mm -hmm. think egypt, egypt was even you know more advanced as far as the stuff that that i've looked at or oh, refined, yeah. re refined you know and um to to think that we don't have really anything in the region as far as culture or civilization before the egyptian civilization um we have you know there was kind of um there was the unification of Egypt, you know, whether it was 3500 BC or something like that. But like all the things that we have in terms of statues and hieroglyphs and temples and stuff basically started with Egypt. And it was incredibly well developed, right, seemingly out of the gate and uh, and, and, and so well developed and so um, like perfect that it didn't change much for like 3000 years. Like, can you imagine? We we can't imagine ten years without dramatic change right now, but like, it, it just it it always kind of was a big question mark in my mind. That one, how did it come out of the box so highly developed with so much we still don't understand about it? Whether we're talking about like kind of the religious, uh, the religious aspect of the civilization, or obviously their architectural capabilities and sophistication, but they got to that place and then. They were just like, this is where this is what we were striving for. And we're just going to mainly hang out here for the next twenty five hundred, three thousand years and not change a hell of a lot in terms of the way the civilization looks. Um, you know, it's it's all there's so many question marks. And uh, I, I find all that stuff very fascinating. And um, yeah, who, I, who knows? Who knows? I totally agree. And of course, there's, you know, the mystery of the Sphinx and, you know, the, the pyramids and the Eye of Ra and all of that, you know, which totally gets wrapped into, you know, mysticism today. You right. know, it's, it's the basis. It, a lot of it is the, you know, the basis even for, you know, Freemasonic uh, ritual. A lot of it comes from, uh, you know, from uh, the Egyptian symbology. So it's very well, they use Egyptian. They are, it's Greco Egyptian. But um, OK, I talking on this path though, because um, you, you were mentioning okay, you were you're mentioning spiritual pursuits. Did you ever happen to did you ever happen to read one book that totally uh, caught me was James Frazier's The Golden Bow? No, you might want to that that's a super interesting one, and it essentially like it it, uh, it explains because you were talking about ritual before, right? And yeah. it, it's very interesting um, because. 
essentially what I ended up learning was that you could you could technically do a ritual as long as the symbols are correct, right? As long as the symbolism is correct with what it is that you want to do, you can make a you can make a ritual out of anything. So that that's something that uh, I found really interesting. And James Frazier's The Golden Bow essentially talks about the different, you know, the different rituals and beliefs throughout history of like different tribes and stuff like that. And it, it's it's very interesting, you know. It gives you their cool. yeah. It's anyways, it's a big book, but it's it's a great read. I'll add it to the list, man. Yeah, man. There's, it's, still, there's still so many I oh. need to uh, to read, but. I go through periods, you know, I, I just, I'm like, yeah, I've done too much reading for a while. I need to, I need output, not input basically. And so I do that and then I, I'm like, oh, I'm starving for some new, some new stuff to chew on. And then I go through a big reading binge. And of course, a lot of it is Bitcoin and over the last few years. Yeah. Um, do you do Audible? I, I was an Audible person for a long time. And then I, I, I don't know why I stopped it. I, I. I should probably get back on it, but I, there's something I like having the book because yeah. I really like to give books away. You know, when I'm done, I like to, you know, if I come across somebody that I think would like it, I just like to give it to them. And I, obviously, you don't get that chance when, you have it when it's audible. So, <laughs> but it makes traveling more cumbersome and stuff like that too. So, and I used to back like back in my backpacking days, I used to like write my email in the inside cover. And I'd put it on like one of those book exchange places in the hostel or something and say, you know, no to the top. Like if you read this book, write your email down and like pass it off somewhere. And I'm always kind of I'm wondering, like, when will I get an email from someone's like, dude, I just read your book. Thanks for like dropping it off. It hasn't happened yet, though. So <laughs> it will. Books are probably destroyed. Well, maybe. But if sometimes, you know, it's interesting, right? Uh, it's kind of like you said when you were at your father's bookshelf and you happened to pick out that one book. I, I'm I'm a firm believer i um i don't believe in coincidences like i i just believe that you know we we do things and you know we were we either wrote them in before we ever materialized or whatever it is but i just i don't believe in coincidences so uh for me eventually it's like the the right person the person that is meant to pick up that book will and the so person that was meant to write you will right they just it's haven't met it yet Sure, but is there is there free will if there if there's no coincidences? So, but that's okay. So that that's like a whole I you know I thought about that, but like what now we have to define what free will really is. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like well, do we like have how a, how is it? Let me ask you this: do, Are we able to make our own decisions? But but how is how is the lack of coincidence not making our own decisions? Right. Well, because it infer it, it, it supposes that there's a there's something that's pre written. Right. Well, there's something that you pre-wrote, not necessarily somebody else. So we're kind of acting out our own movie that we wrote. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we could be. <laughs> I don't know. I, I always yeah. love to think about stuff like that. You know, it's just I it, like it doesn't like for me, I because I don't believe in coincidences and it's right. I, I always think, OK, well, if I don't believe in coincidences, then what about free will? But but then like what if what if I already wrote this in? You know, it's like, what if I created this script? Mm -hmm. I don't know that. I don't know that somebody could, else didn't. Could be. You know? Could be. Yeah. And, you know, I, I like thinking about that kind of stuff, free will and decision making in the context of, well, well other, other contexts that make you question, like, do you really, are you really choosing? Like, how much of it is your... Uh, you know, the how your emotions or thought processes are mediated by like your microbiome and the bacteria that's in, in your gut. Like how much does that influence your levels of serotonin? How much does that influence 
how like whether you're going to go for this experience or that or this food or that you know it does actually impact us so it, it begs the question like does it push us over the edge one way or the other and if so are those fucking things in our guts making decisions for us and if so what decisions are we making who are we you make an excellent point and i totally forget where i read this but essentially what i what i read about was was that um technically everything is is drugs okay and the fact that we create this distinction right mm. between like illicit drugs and you know like the legal ones and everything it, it's it's a load of crap because yeah. when you go and drink let's say coca-cola or something like that the sugar is impacting the chemistry of your body and that is a chemical change which is exactly what's happening when you smoke weed or whatever it is it's just a different set of chemicals that are that are reacting so to your point right you know, like, yeah, I, I do. I think that to a certain extent, I think that that may, might be where the mindfulness uh, exercises come in, right? Totally. Because right there, like that, that would be the only way to mitigate, you know, the, the emotions and, and the physical body from, from being part of that decision process. A hundred percent. Like I think oh, yeah. that mindfulness stuff or kind of a stoic discipline uh, yeah. attitude or approach towards your life, like that I, I think that's why these those practices part of the reason why they're they're so useful or beneficial and, and have been used for so long is because they they kind of give you back a, a fuller agency we can't say that you have like complete agency because as a physical being in the physical world you're probably going to be influenced by a great many things that are kind of sub perceptual but i think you know part of the idea there is you know, doing things with the utmost intent and agency. Like, you know, if you're going to do something, you're doing it because you've made as clear a possible decision to do so as you can, you know, and who knows? But uh, I, th I think you're right. I think, you know, mindfulness, stoicism, discipline, those are all intertwined in that, uh, in that process. The intent is definitely important, right? No, like it's it, most, it's, most important. It's, it's all about the, it's all about the will, right? Uh, what is it? Uh, it's persistence, persistence, persistence. <laughs> Got to keep at it. So, okay. We're going to switch gears a little bit from, uh, you know, from that stuff and, and just kind of start to go down a little bit with, uh, with Bitcoin. Um, okay. So let me ask you this. This is just like more kind of like generally, uh, you know, just getting your thoughts on, um, I guess the, the state of like, you know, the, you know, economics today, like what do you think is so difficult to grasp about deflationary currency? Like this is something I find like people, for some reason, the human mind has no, no fucking problem making numbers bigger. Like mm -hmm. we, we, we have no problem with just adding and adding and adding, but for some reason, a, a deflationary type of currency or, you know, some, or like Bitcoin, for some reason, people just like, they, they, they mentally check out at the 21 million. Like I'm talking about no coiners, you know, like certain no coiners, they, they will mentally check out at that 21 million. What do you, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I've, my experience has been the biggest, uh, the people that most fall into the category that you just described are the, the traditional finance people. Like, cause, cause they were the ones that were trained in the existing paradigm where, you know, of course an inflation or a currency, has to be inflationary and you know you've got to have some supply elasticity so that you can have stable pricing and you know these sort of arguments and but for normal people like i it's hard not to get their eyes to glaze over but they don't really have a problem with like look there's there's 21 million 
times a hundred million of these things that you can transact with. There's not going to be any more. And that's how you, you know, that's what you earn and that's how you spend. And like the average person, because their knowledge is so limited in any of this stuff, they're like, yeah, all right. Okay. Makes sense. Like, I don't see a big deal with that because most people don't really understand inflation either. Like, it's not like the normie is walking around thinking, like, you know, it totally makes sense that we have a you know, currency that inflates about 2% a year vis-a-vis -vis prices and has about a 7% annual monetary inflation rate. Like, yeah, that seems normal. Like, as far as I know, that's what it's supposed to be. Like, nobody is... <laughs> No one's is, having that they, talk. Nobody's thinking that way. And, and like, and I'm the, I'm the jerk off that has to be like in the grocery store with my sister being like, the, the bag of chips is $4 now. Do you remember when we were kids? Like oh I'm, we're God. the old people now. Cause like what are you I used kidding to, me? I, when we used to go to the store when we were kids and like my mom would give us a buck and we'd be like, man, mom, just a buck. And she'd be like, all you needed was a nickel back in my day. And we'd be like, yeah, mom, but you're so old. And now here I am being like, even, you know, when I was a kid, Things like that were much cheaper, and uh, people noticed the prices, of course, because it hurts their pop pocketbook, and they're like the price of homes and the price of, you know, food and whatever. In certain cases, you know, the deflation argument is another interesting one to break into. But people know that like prices are going up in certain cases, but they don't put it together. They they, they don't realize no. that money can have can can be different. They just accept like yeah, sure, the the, the you know the the Fed prints dollars. Uh, the Bank of Canada prints dollars, the ECB prints euros, and this is what we use as money. Just get after it and get some, and, and that's it. Why think anything more of it? Well, I think we're entering a period where people are going to, the answer to that question is going to be because you may find yourself on the losing end of that deal if you don't think more of it, if you don't understand what money is and, and how it's being manipulated and abused and how you might be able to protect yourself from that. So, um, but to, to your point, like, I don't think it's difficult at all. Like a deflationary currency doesn't bother me in the least. Yes, if it's if it's if it doesn't have supply elasticity, that means the, the volatility is going to be all represented in the price. And um, as some as a deflationary currency monetizes, i.e. its adoption grows, um, that's going to mean that there's going to be more price volatility. It's not a bad thing. It's not an unexpected thing. It's a totally normal expected thing at which, you know, at the point in time when it's fully distributed or more or less fully distributed, then I suspect the price volatility will more or less reflect the growth and changes in the economic or productive capacity or output of the jurisdiction or, or group of people or economy that's using that currency. And that's totally fine and normal. And I don't see a big problem with debt either. Just look, if, if you're if your money is, let's say, yielding 2%, i.e. it has a 2% annual deflation, then that just means you, you, you're going to need to, like the people who are trying to borrow from you, uh, you know, businesses or what have you, they're going to have to offer you a better rate of return. That means they're going to have to build a more competitive business or, or, or bring greater value to the market versus today where you lose money on your cash balances so you have a negative yield on your cash in the form of inflation and so you're only too happy like if someone comes along wants to borrow money from you and they say we'll give you one percent a year on your money you're like sure take my money here because i'm losing money if i don't do that right so you know that's the and that's how debt works in an in, in inflationary currency so i don't i don't know why people make such a big fuss of it and you know i find it funny that 
you know, even uh, gold bugs who ostensibly are anti uh, fiat money and are pretty much, you know, aligned with Bitcoiners in every in every way, except for thinking Bitcoin is a legitimate uh, form of money or a legitimate solution. Um, they still they make that argument with gold. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bitcoin's great, but you need some inflation supply inflation and gold's like one to three percent is like a nice nice sweet spot and like what the fuck are you talking about that that makes no sense like where is it writ that like oh one to three percent monetary inflation is like the universal money sweet spot no that's just something you have to put up with because of the nature of the substance that you're using and that people have used for money it's a flaw it's not a feature you know and so Bitcoin represents a solution to that because it's established absolute scarcity for the first time, mm-hmm. right? And and that is mind-blowingly amazing. Like, and it, that doesn't get enough press, nearly enough press at all. People say like 21 million cap and you kind of just nod your head and be like, okay, cool. Be like, no, no, no. Do you know what that means? It means that somehow it's been figured out how to make something absolutely scarce regardless of the demand for it. Can you think of anything else in the goddamn universe that you, if, if you wanted more of it, you couldn't possibly get it other than your subjective experience of time? No, you can't. And the fact that this was created is a really, really big deal. And it makes for the best form of money because what is money? In money, you're trying to store your surplus, you know, productive capacity and time and energy. And so you want that container for that to be as airtight as possible whereas everything that we've used prior is leaky it leaks a certain amount of yes time and resources because it's because its supply is continuously growing so i don't know why it's a hard thing for people to get but it certainly ain't fucking hard for me to understand I totally agree. And that, that was a totally killer answer, man. Thank you. And uh, just to go back to something that you said in that answer, which I think is very interesting, right? Because in a deflationary currency, the person borrowing now has to provide or produce a a better rate of return. Okay. So that means, so to me, uh, the way I see it, and I could be incorrect, um, but that to me means like a flight to quality. Um, because people are going to, you know, in order to be incentivized to separate yourself with, with that Bitcoin, somebody has to give you something superior. And if something superior doesn't exist, they have to create it. Somebody has to create it. So, so to me, I, it seems like, I, I think that that goes back to that, you know, the idea of low time preference, which, you know, Bitcoiners know so well that, you know, that this kind of low time preference and deflationary currency actually ends up positively incentivizing the wheels of production in the long run. It's, it's, a, it's an instrument of, uh, of a long horizon. That's the way I see it. I, I totally agree. I think that process amongst nestled uh, uh, amongst a, a, a grander process, but I definitely think that will mean that people who are making the economic calculation to try to bring value to the world or to the market – they're going to have to be more discerning. And the way that you're more discerning in that calculation is I need to bring more value to the market, right? Like how much value is it to make the little plastic trinkets at the, at the checkout line of your grocery store? Not much, but with, you know, with, with easy, cheap money, because obviously um, the interest rate is the cost of money, right? And right now we've made the cost of money artificially low. And this means, you know, people want to deploy their capital and there's, you know, there's only, 
there's so many willing participants be like, well, sure, like I'll take it and I'll make trinkets and I'll take it and I'll do whatever, whatever, whatever. There's really no competition for the capital anymore because the price of capital is so low. And uh, yeah, I think you get a bunch of basically garbage uh, as a result of that. And I think if the, the cost of capital were higher, uh, then you would have you would get people that had to bring more value in the form of products and services to the market. And we would all be better off uh, for that, I think. And we wouldn't be destroying our futures in the form of, uh, you know, all this ridiculous debt and monetary debasement and that we're seeing today. So I, I agree. I mean, I, I think it's a good thing. Like I think and, and, and I think the market needs to determine the cost of capital. That's another massive component of this. Like we have a social like we have so much more socialism than, than people think, but we definitely have monetary socialism. The government is party yeah. is the other party to every single transaction because it's the government's product that you exchange that is being exchanged in every transaction. The government's product is is the money. And they they have put a price control just the same as a cartel might put a price control on oil, gold, milk, is, which is the case in Canada, um, I learned recently. But price controls always fail because they're not pricing things um, according to all the different market inputs, right? They're making some other calculation and doing the pricing. And manipulating interest rates is a price control on the cost of capital. And, you know, what we in a free market, what we should hope to see with a, with a money like Bitcoin that cannot be manipulated or controlled is the market will dictate what the cost of capital is. And it'll take in all the inputs and it'll determine what the time preferences are of all the different participants. And it will come up with a cost of capital. Maybe it's 2%, maybe it's 18%. The market will determine and it will find an equilibrium between hoarding money and producing goods and services that the market wants. And it'll find that perfect equilibrium and synthesis between the two uh, and with all the considerations of quality and quantity and all of that stuff. And that's the way it's supposed to work. And that's the, the best balance that we can strike as human beings attempt to in, attempting to interact with one another. I, I totally agree. I, it, it, it's like, to me, it, it just seems like we're we're kind of like using a crutch, right? Like that that's kind of what fiat is. It's this crutch that we allow ourselves to use. And at the same time, it also kind of sweeps the leg while we're trying to walk with the crutch. You know, so it's like, a, you know, it's like, we're sure we're going to help you along, but we're also going to cripple you while you're, you know, being helped along. So it, yeah. it, it's kind of like this, this, anyways, it's like this double-edged sword that, that just, um, that, that really makes things difficult. And I just wanted to go back to something that you said before about, you know, the, the, the cheap things and the, and the, you know, the plastic stuff, um, the, the cheap money makes it so that cheap things exist, I think. And it's not to say that you wouldn't have low priced items, right? We're not talking mm -hmm. about price. We're talking about the, the, the cheapness of the item. Like no one would be incentivized to make crap if the money wasn't garbage itself. I, I, right. th I think. Well, yeah, because the, the market um, will ask, well, the, the, the people with the capital will ask the market effectively, like, how bad do you want it through the interest rate? And if the interest rate were high, then when the market is asked, how bad do you want, fill in the blank, this shitty trinket at the grocery store? Well, the market would say not very much via the interest rate because you, you, the interest rate is mediating the time preferences of all the different market participants. And basically, 
being the kind of lens through which they determine what is valuable enough to get produced. And but when you manipulate that all the way down, then that question of how bad do you want it, i.e. market, how bad do you want it, is like there's almost like it can answer the question in the affirmative almost all the time because the capital is so cheap because there's just like an endless amount of capital to pump stuff out. So the market doesn't have to want something that badly for something to get produced when there's so, when the capital costs so little, when there's so much capital. So, you know, I think we look back on this period and it's so fun. I mean, you know, the human story is basically the, the, the story of the frog boiling in water and it's really hard to step outside your, your own time. But we, I think in, whenever history is told 50 years, hundred years, 500 years from now, these offenses will be seen for what they truly are and, yep. and how egregious the influence, manipulation, abuse, interference, misallocation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, of the way in which the money and the monetary system is functioning today. And of course, on top of which is layered the political system um, that derives its power from that will be really, really, really heavily criticized. And, uh, you know, I hope we're looking back on it from a Bitcoin uh, future. But like it, to, to me, the offense is I, I see it. I believe I see I'm seeing it clearly and it seems extremely egregious to me. And I think more people will see that see it that way in the future. I, I definitely agree. And uh, I mean, let's call it what it is. We're all just a bunch of tax slaves. So, right. you know, it's it's. That, that, that's really, I, I think, what it is. And it is just a shame. And I, I do agree with you. I, I think that this is going to be looked back on as, as a time of like, how the hell were we so stupid? Yeah. Then, then to, you know, sit there and, you know, I mean, you know, hog tie ourselves in the middle of a marathon. You know, it's like you, you just, we, we, you know, to let a bunch, just, just to let a very small cabal of people, you know, rule the monetary system of the entire world. It, it, it makes no sense. And the sad thing is, is that there's so many people that are incentivized, personally incentivized to keep this charade going. And that's right. the, and that's the problem. I, I, I think they, they just don't see beyond that. Um, I agree. And I, I think, that, you know, that's one reason why, you know, Bitcoin's incentives and in game theory are so exciting because it has a chance to kind of incent people in a different way and get them into a, a different kind of loop of, of rewards. But um no, I, I fully agree with you. I, I think that's how it's been corrupted. And, you know, what allows them to get away from it is the piece that's been talked a lot about in the Bitcoin space over the last six to 12 months is, you know, the deflation story, but like the price deflation story, uh, you know, represented in mostly technological advancement that we've experienced over the last 50 some odd years. And, you know, that allows these um, the, the money manipulators to get away with so much more than probably they otherwise would mm -hmm. because we look at two percent inflation and it, even for those observers who care they're like yeah that's tolerable i can handle two percent inflation i can get a well up until you know the last couple of years like you could even get it in a you know fixed fixed note or something like that but you know i can go to the stock market and easily get eight to ten percent conservative so what do i care about two percent inflation and even and the people that aren't investing, it's like, yeah, that really sucks. But two percent, meh. But what if you knew that that two percent was really seven, eight, nine percent, but you were getting five, six, seven percent 
price deflation because of technology. Well, if you weren't getting that, then the seven, eight, nine percent annual inflation would probably sting a lot more, and you'd probably perk up your ears a little bit more, and you'd probably be a little bit more upset about it. So, you know, these are this is part of the dynamic in which we live today, where all of this has become obfuscated for these reasons, and this allows people, among other reasons, mm-hmm. as you know, people are busy. You know, all the well, this is this is actually a great point is that people are so busy trying to keep pace with how things are being degraded through the, de- the debasement of the money that they're, they're the hamster wheel that they're on yep. is getting faster and faster through time. So, like, they can't even get off to look and say, wait the fucking second, what the fuck is going on over here? Because they're just so damn consumed with keeping up with with the way things are, are unraveling. And so. You can't blame them for not. You can't blame most people for not knowing how a lot of this works, and for not, uh, you know, seeing how egregious the offense on the on the side of central banks and uh, you know governments are uh, in our current time. But they will, you know, because one, it won't last forever. This 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 game can't last forever. Bitcoin is is coming up to put more pressure on the downfall of of that system, and obviously we both and everyone listening, I'm sure, hopes that happens as soon as possible. <laughs> Uh, and you know, his, the, the truth has a way of asserting itself over time. And uh, un- unfortunately, we often have to wait for the history books to see what happened in a given period with the with with a certain degree of clarity. But maybe this time, you know, even if just a few of us can can uh, figure it out beforehand and, and maybe do something about it and protect ourselves and the people we care about and. Maybe that's all we can uh, strive for. Who knows? Oh, I totally agree. And actually, uh, on to your to your point, you know, about this all coming to an end. Um, so I'm in the middle. I'm I'm like kind of getting towards the end of the creature from Jekyll Island. And I don't know if you read that one, but man, uh, back, yeah. okay. So I mean, we are in the fifth iteration. So we've already seen the central bank fail four times before this. Okay, if I'm if I understood this correctly. Um, so this is the same, it's, it's, it's the same script being played over and over again with slightly different twists each time and different language. Mm. It's always slightly different language, you know, just to make it seem like it's something else. So we're, we're kind of coming up on the end of this central bank's reign. You know what I mean? Like regardless, let's say, and I hate to say it, but regardless of Bitcoin, that is at an end. You know what I mean? Right, like it's right. it, it's 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 at the tail end of whatever the hell it is that it's doing. But since we have Bitcoin, we we actually have a way out of this. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that people don't even seem to realize. Like, I never knew that there were four iterations of this before. Right. I I never knew that there were four collapses before this. You know, like it's like it, it's you know people don't even realize and it's like i don't understand even your you know it's like our grandparents knew about it they were around already for one of them yeah dude it's so it's funny mind-boggling. like history is if you uh, and i'm a big history buff buff i love reading about it so like it, it, when you read history basically the whole story of history is change like that's how history is yeah. told through the things that change but in the present moment, the status quo is so intoxicating that you convince yourself that it's static, that it's unchanging. Like, this is the way things are. And this is the way things will always be. Even as fast as like technology is advancing today and things changing, like we just, it seems like that's one of the tragedies of history is that the people in the moment 
are again the frog boiling in water they don't recognize that they're in the midst of a story of unrelenting change uh they think they're in a story of stasis and that you know this is the way the world is and will be and that's all i need to know and that is just like that's the that's exactly the opposite of what history is history is just change after change after change after change up down up down up down up down and um like you said, we've seen central banks in the U.S. Uh, fail a number of times before. We've seen presidents warn of the dangers of, of these institutions. We've seen currency crises all over the world. We've seen governments fuck the money all over the world. We've seen the social and geopolitical implications of uh, a failing money. Mm-hmm. And here we are on the precipice of many of those things. And we just think it's probably going to be OK. It's going to be OK. It's going to be fine. It'll be the same. Like. I don't think anything's going to change that much, you know, and, but here we, but here we are importantly, like we're the people like our, our, like our historical counterpart was probably, you know, like the, those kind of rebels hanging out in the French cafes, just thinking like, man, like what the fuck is going on? Like all, all of this is, like, <laughs> it's true. What, what is the government doing? They, how, how can they be doing this? How can people not see how, fucked up all this is and how impressive this is and how this is going to end badly uh you know so different times same story and um but interestingly and i think very importantly and which is what excites me like beyond description is that this time it really is different because bitcoin is a solution that has a solution that has staying power because Mm -hmm. of its attributes like before it was just like the government's fucked things up again. The money is destroyed. What do we do? Let's fire up a new government and fire up a new money. But hey, isn't the same thing going to happen? Ah, we'll worry about that down the road. And there's just nothing you could do about it. Gold was obviously the best option, but we all know the faults that gold has. And that's why we keep recur- this thing continues to recur. And we just wind up in this model of trust. The trust is broken. The system fails. Kick it up again. Build it on top of this thing that requires trust. Trust is okay for a while. Trust is broken. System fails. And again and again and again and again. This time we have something where that can't happen. Where where the institutions that emerge because that trust is required won't emerge in the same capacity as they did before. Those power, the way in which power concentrated as a result of the solutions that were drummed up and the money that was used in that time won't emerge. The power won't concentrate the same way it won't be able to be co-opted and abused and directed at to whosoever malicious ends as it was before you know and so that is why this is so exciting because if this can get established and i think we will both agree that it's going to be you know it's going to although nothing is certain but if it can get established then we that the change that will come from that is going to be unlike anything that's ever happened and i think this is why so many of us are it's hard not to be a, like a crazy Bitcoin zealot because yes. you begin you, you begin to see what kind of a, a, a world is possible when it's predicated on a money system like Bitcoin. And of course, what even blows your mind even further is that Bitcoin is programmable money. So when we encounter things that we want it to do or facilitate, we're, you know, we're going to be able to expand basically the properties and attributes of this money, whereas before... Gold was gold, and you had to kind of just accept what it was, its faults and its and its benefits altogether. And uh, you know, so I, I think this is the ace in the hole this time. 
so things are going to fall, are probably going to crumble again. It's going to be a very difficult time. I wish that wasn't the case. I, I prefer a smooth transition, of course, but if history is any teacher. But off the back of that, the solution that, that emerges may actually have some staying power that creates a fairer, more prosperous, more peaceful world for everybody. And that is why the fuck I'm here and you're here and a lot of people listening to this podcast are here because yes, we want to improve our lot. You know, we want freedom. We want financial freedom. We want to be able to pursue the things that we find interesting and meaningful and express ourselves. But we also want to be part of contributing to and building that world, you know? And so um, I, I just... That's why I'm so excited about all this stuff. So bullish. So bullish. <laughs> Might have to stack after this. Uh, but but um, it's interesting that, uh, you know, because just to go back to your, you know, to your point, you know, about being a Bitcoin zealot, um, I, I start to feel like this, this in, you know, this insane idiot uh, where, you know, the root of all the problems is our bad money. And it's really sad because when you do take a look at most issues you really can trace it back to bad money. Either it was a person or group of people who had access to this cheap bad money and then funded a cause which shouldn't have funding in some cases. Um, you know, things like that, specifically endless wars. You know, if we're going to give it an example, the fact that we can fund endless wars with debt that we're just laying on the nation right? Yeah, at least in the, in, in the US. I mean, these are just endless wars. And, you know, let's be honest, it's all it is, is just they're just printing money for it. So all that does is make everybody else pay for it. And they're really, I, I don't even know why they're doing that. But let's be honest, it's not about the US themselves. This isn't a, a war for them. You know, it's, it's, it's not a war for us. It's, it's about the wars are always about the money interests of the wars, they're never about the wars themselves. So it's like, to me, I always feel like a psycho, you know, because I, I'm able to, you know, you're, you're able to look at almost every single societal problem and be like, look, I'm really sorry, but most likely we could fix this with Bitcoin. Good money would fix this problem. <laughs> and like, you're, you're just afraid to have somebody to tell you to just shut the fuck up. You know? I know. It's like every single conversation, like everyone, everyone chimes in, like you're having a, a social circle, you're having a dinner or whatever, and everyone gives their bit and they're like, what about you, John? And you're just like, uh, guys, unfortunately, I have the same response for you. <laughs> it's, it's about the money. Um, but, you know, that, that's also what makes this so into like intoxicating and so uh so stimulating is that level kind of like all these like we said at the beginning and my part of my rabbit hole story was piecing together the world why does it function in this way why does it work this way and now that you have a thread that brings all those things back to one uh like central point of focus like it feels like you've you've got the the cheap glasses that you just put on the lenses and you like you see like it's like kind of the matrix right like you see the the code the ver vertical lines of code streaming like you're like oh shit like and and it's and you you test yourself you're like no i can't that's that can't be right and then that's why so many of us in the space are just frantically trying to update our knowledge and keep pace with the latest thinking and the latest implementations and just really try to put pressure and test you know this level of thinking and mix it up with people online and stuff and thus far, you know, I think most of us come back to the inclusion like, no, it, it, it's, it's reaffirming that sense of, of clarity that we see that something that kind of like a um, 
what do they call it in, in science? Uh, like when a theory is kind of all encompassing. Uh, I am blank on that. Um, a perennial philosophy? No, that's not science. No, that's more philosophical. But a perennial no, I, philosophy I, 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 is all encompassing, though. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm blanking on it right now, too. But anyways, okay. Ne- nevertheless, <laughs> the point is just that like that that level of clarity is uh, is is amazing. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once once you see how everything is connected, and the the central basis of all that connection and the influences of all that stuff, like. I'm sorry, but that's that that seems to be just the way it is. And that's why it's so compelling to focus on that one thing, not get lost in all this noise of all the crazy shit that's going on today. No, focus on that thing, because that lever right there, that's where all the leverage is for the change that that the beneficial change that the world is could experience that thing right there. So let's focus on getting that out of the box. Let's focus on getting that onto the world. And then once we kind of let that change percolate let, let that the influence of that percolate then let's see what things look like and then maybe we can come together and devise solutions for the problems that remain but you know uh i, I agree it is always <laughs> it's so often about the money you know like it or not it's true um okay so speaking of money actually there's something that i've been hearing a little bit more and more of and i i wanted to ask you if you've been hearing more of this um i'm seeing more news about cash shortages have you been have you been seeing that? I kind of see like, you know, random tweets here and there. I've seen some news articles here and there. But of course, as you know, it's very difficult to trust the source of all of this stuff because so yeah, I'm just saying like, have, because personally, I go to a, if I go to an ATM, which I'm not a huge proponent of cash to begin with, I, unless I have to use it, but I haven't experienced this myself. So and I don't know anyone who has. So I guess I'm just trying to figure it out from my personal standpoint. Do you know of anyone who has not been able to withdraw cash or have you experienced this or? Well, I've experienced a cash shortage, but that's only because I'm always stacking. baby. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only shortage that matters. <laughs> that's not a, that's not a shortage. Okay. <laughs> I like that uh, though. I like it. Uh, I haven't I, like, I've heard, I mean, I think, a lot of governments are trying to move cashless, right? Um, you know, Sweden's done it. China is basically cashless now. Um, and, you know, it just it, if, if, if I'm the government, it makes sense in terms of tracking and uh, controlling things more and maybe even disintermediating some of the financial system so that, you know, cash and borrowing and lending is more directly related to the central bank. We might mm-hmm. see stuff like that come online in the future. Um, what I've seen, and I think this is primarily a result of COVID, is that businesses not accepting cash, you know, so any cash that I did have, you yes. know, just lying around to pay for stuff, you know, I'd go up and try to pay for, you know, a Dairy Queen blizzard or something like that. And, you know, they tell me I'd have to use my card. So cash as a result of the virus has become uh, sidelined. And I think this, to the extent that governments want to go cashless for whatever their reasons are this certainly plays into their hands because you know there's they'll easily get the political uh, and public will to do something like that because one people you know i mean cash is is an old technology i mean i know it's anonymous and uh, like you know that's there's a benefit to that a huge benefit to that but like let's be real most of my transactions are online 
you know, like if I'm ordering stuff from Amazon or other places on the internet, like absent, you know, going out to eat at a restaurant or something like it's mostly digital money anyways. Uh, so I think it's inevitable that cash gets phased out. It's just, we have to, you know, we're hoping that the cash that replaces that ultimately is one that can't be censored and tracked and controlled and stifled and manipulated and debased and, and that kind of stuff. We're hoping for obviously Bitcoin to be that cash. But the reality is I think we'll have a lot of digital currencies from governments and central banks prior to that. And I, I see if for no other reason that uh, as a matter of operational efficiency, that governments will want to phase out cash in favor of uh, you know digital payments and stuff. So speaking of which, that you were just talking about the uh, the government stable coins. Actually, there there was a tweet that I had saved uh, because I wanted to discuss this with you. It's not yours or my tweet. This actually came out of uh, a shitcoiner, um, but it was a, <laughs> but it was a good it was a good tweet. Um, it was uh, this is from Eric, uh, you know, from Eric .eth. You know, he's you know one of the ETH heads. Uh, just so everyone is aware, there's a backdoor in the USDC stablecoin launched by Coinbase today which allows any address to be blacklisted and funds frozen. So this thing got a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, I guess we'll say a lot of visibility today. Did you say that was Coinbase? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was Coinbase. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> so, so to your point, you know, about the government wanting to track and everything like that, you know, these people, these people that, that think for a second that these stable coins post, pose, excuse me, any any competition in any way, shape, or form to Bitcoin, um, they, they're just out of their fucking minds. Oh, because that's that's a, that's a hilarious shit ever. When like you get token finance, you know, old man, old man on CNBC, they're like, "What do you think about the influence of central bank digital currencies on Bitcoin?" Like they're dead in the water. They've the the whole thing they've been fighting for. The governments are going to do and. and you know, all you can do is laugh. And obviously, those these these people don't fully understand the distinction, uh, nor I think a lot of even those some of those people understand the distinction. But their answer is always just like, yeah, well, the governments will stop it. And I think, you know, the Bitcoiners response with a twinkle in their eyes, like, good luck with that. Yep. You know, you could you could slow things down. You can make it difficult, but you can only hold back the tide for so long. And uh, I, I think a lot of people fail to see that. Uh, torrents still exist. Right. Okay. I, I, and like, and that's the thing, right? Like, I remember this from when I was a kid, right? Like back then you had, uh, so this is going to age me. So, um, so there was Napster when I was a kid, right? To, to get music. And then all of a sudden it morphed into other things like Kazaa Light and, and Morpheus and, and all these other programs. And then finally you had BitTorrent, mm -hmm. okay? Which just totally freaking stole the show. But the whole point I'm trying to make is, is that all of these decentralized technologies, like you said, can be slowed down for a time. They can be stifled for a time, but they can't be stopped. Yeah. And this is what people don't understand. I, I agree. But it also is a good point, is, is a good example to use to point to a potential uh, like threat or something that could slow Bitcoin down because Torrent still exists. But the vast majority of, of mainstream consumers, or a big portion at least, use a paid service like Spotify or were on iTunes before, right? Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they were like, okay, for the price and for not being considered a bad person or whatever, I'll, I'll go along with this. And so I think it could be the case that 
that could happen like with the advent of technology you know with like robin hood traders or cash app people being able to buy like a fraction of a share of tesla combined with central bank digital currencies that allow you to make you know payments quickly and efficiently and cheaply and all this kind of stuff this could it could slow things down until the actual value prop of bitcoin is like until things the ways in which the the powers that be manipulate their currencies and the, the negative downstream effects of that is felt to such a degree that Bitcoin's value prop rises. I like, you that. know, cause, yeah. cause like most people aren't looking for revolution, obviously. Most, no. like, like we've been saying, most people are uh, apathetic at, at best. And so they just think like, as long as like I can, support myself watching tv go to the movies every now and then and have a nice meal here and there i i'm not going to rough ruffle the i'm not going to rock the boat and so they're far less idealistic than people like you or i and fair enough like it, not everyone's going to be a revolutionary to you know to use those terms um and so those people will scoop up those imperfect solutions that are offered to them because they're solutions for pro for problems well because they don't perceive the problems of the um that bitcoin provides solutions for and so they'll think you know libra coin is the greatest thing since sliced bread you know yeah i get to pay somebody in zimbabwe for i don't you know happens immediately blah 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 so it could be po it, it could possibly mean that Bitcoin gets slowed down for that reason. But I just it's difficult for me to believe that the level of manipulation and abuse of the currency by central banks today can can cannot cause like I, I think it will cause too much disruption in a relatively small short period of time to not be felt um by mainstream people and to not cause people to be angry or look for a solution or something like that. Like we were saying, like currency, uh, your fiat currencies have failed throughout history and they usually fail in the same way where, you know, governments get in trouble. They print the shit out of it to try to paper everything over. Crisis of confidence in the currency, currency collapse, asset prices skyrocket while the currency drops. And eventually, you know, there's a complete loss of confidence in it. I don't know how close we are to that timeline. It's like I said, it's hard for me to imagine based on all everything that's gone on, especially in the last four months, that we're not at least starting to see that on the horizon, whether it's one, five, ten years from now, it's impossible to say. But when that happens, you know, I, I, I think the case for Bitcoin will be all the stronger, right? Because people aren't, won't be just looking for you know, cheap, easy payments, then they'll be looking for a way to protect themselves and nothing will offer the level of protection that Bitcoin can offers ever like that. That's where the, the 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 headline absolute scarcity of money will be, you know, ironed into people's minds because everything else in the world will be manipulated or abused or whatever. You know, I think I mean, it seems it seems like it may play out like that. I'm sure there'll be a lot of uh, details and variables that none of us are currently considering that oh, enter yeah. the, the narrative. But oh, I totally agree. There'll, there'll always be the you know the black swan event that none of us foresaw. Right. I yeah. want to go back though to something that that you said about Robinhood fractional shares. So 
I I started buying stocks when I was 19. Um, I I had never heard of being able to, as a retail investor, to be able to buy fractions of shares. Mm-hmm. Okay, until until this, if I am not mistaken. I, I have an E-Trade account. I've never been able to buy fractions of shares as a retail investor, you know, who's not putting in, you know, gobs and gobs of money. So yeah. this to me screams liquidity crisis. To me, this this what this tells me is that they need the average Joe's money because if there's anything I've ever learned um, about, about um, financial institutions is, you know, they're not going to give you something unless it's good for them. Right. Okay, so... The piece about this is already, already the way that share structures work today, they are IOUs. Back in the day, you used to actually get a certificate and everything like that. Today, it's an IOU from the brokerage that you're using. You're like, I think you're like three spaces removed from the actual shares themselves or, or two. Yeah, it's like it's, it's your brokerage and then some other, I, I'm not sure what that's called, like a clearinghouse. I, I'm not even sure. Um, but you don't actually own those shares. And I I guess what I, my point is, I personally think this Robin hood, uh, this Robin hood thing, um, starts a snowball and gets more people in and other companies are going to do it. The same bullshit that the mortgage crisis did maybe on a smaller scale. Okay. But I think that this collapses horribly. I think that we're going to find out that companies are selling shares that don't exist. We've already had this happen a few times where companies, quote unquote, sold more shares than existed, which isn't supposed to be possible. But here we are. So I guess my my thoughts, uh, I guess my question to you is, what are your thoughts on that? Do you do you you know, what do you think? Look, man, if, if Wall Street has proven anything, it's that they don't mind a little bit of fraud. OK, so that's <laughs> that's completely within the realm of possibility. Just a little. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but what, when I and I'm not sure if it's I know Cash App does a fractional of the fractions of a share thing. Maybe Robinhood does as well. But in any case, the, the reason why I brought it up in the previous um, uh, statement I made is because if like basically kind of the cashification of other financial assets and by that i mean if the liquidity of other financial assets is such that um you know you can buy in extremely small amounts and it's almost immediately liquid like i can hop on cash app and sell shares in tesla and convert to cash and pay for my steak dinner sort of thing then like that gives the the debasement of the cash an added like bit of runway because what you'll probably find is like people will just move for their cash holdings to equally liquid financial assets right and this is how this is kind of how companies manage cash holdings like companies will bonds are an extremely liquid form of basically cash right uh, but down on the consumer level if 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 i think if i have any inkling that either one stocks are going up, which hello, like this is what we're in right now, or two that my money is losing value, and I have this option over here within the same app where mm-hmm. I can be like, oh well, I'll just hold one of those stocks that's like going up, you know, ten percent a month or whatever or more, uh, and when I need to spend, I'll just be like, sell cash, scan the QR code, great, thanks, give me my my Wendy's, and so I like, and and this is actually. I was speaking with 
uh, Gene Epstein. I've spoken to him twice now. He's a wily old, uh, you know, Austrian economist, uh, New Yorker. Um, but he and again, I'm not I'm not I haven't read uh, like much of the Austrian stuff. It's I definitely want to, but I haven't done done that yet. But he was saying that some and I'm not sure if it was Mises or another one, you know, basically saying that they, they the, the cash as a medium of exchange uh, and, and he makes the case not a store of value. Now, I don't see how you can separate the two just rationally thinking about it. But he was basically saying, you know, if it, like if you could hold any asset up to the moment that you want to, to, to exchange it for another one and you just move for a split second into cash in order to facilitate that transaction, then that's what people would do rather than having to store value long term in cash. I disagree with that premise, but what I'm trying to say is that um, I think that type of scenario is forming now around the world. And to what degree will that allow the the abuses in a monetary system to persist? Because people will have that flexibility to move, like to basically save in other liquid financial assets and spend almost directly from them. You liquidate a financial mm. asset, you spend from that. And so how much runway will that give them? Because people will be able to keep pace with or uh, or outpace inflation. And as a result, well, they're not they, they may not be that uh, unhappy about inflation, you know, mm. and people look at look at where we're at today. Right. Everyone's seen the photo of, of Jim Cramer on the TV, you know, 40 percent unemployed yeah. or whatever <clears throat> it was and stocks hitting all time highs. And you see that and you go, well, that's odd. That's weird. You know, whatever. Next next segment, next TV show, whatever. Um, but like these are the signs that there's just one incredible dislocation. But two, in that like this stuff is happening right before most people's eyes, like this devolution, this debasement that we've been talking about. But people aren't really identifying it or labeling it as such. And, you know, I, I think of places uh, and circumstances like in Venezuela where things were great for a long time, happy days, everyone's wealthy, there's tons of revenue coming in. And then within the span of like five years, you get this crazy rampant inflation that erodes the values of value of everybody's savings. Um, but the stock market is booming. And there the inflation got to a, such a level that it was you know pretty easy to point and say something is horribly wrong. <laughs> But interestingly, and you know, the government is still in power there. Yep. You know, and and so, uh, so that hasn't deposed them. It, it it hasn't caused enough of a stir to like have foster like a genuine massive uprising to get rid of the people that ruin that. And my concern is right now, and I think the stock market is being used so politically, especially in the United States. Oh but yeah. If the stock market is doing well, then everyone on TV just says, "Oh hey." Times are good. Obviously, look at the stock market. Everything's great. And so how how much is that hiding in terms of the damage that's being done to the money in the system? And when that when that gravy train stops, if it ever does, I mean, presumably with like infinity, infinite inflation, you could see ridiculous stock market prices, especially in the context of using uh, liquid financial assets as currency. Um, But how long does that last? How long can the ruse be pulled over people's eyes where they just kept like the misdirection and be like, no, 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 don't look over there where things are horrible. Look over there. Everything's <laughs> like the up and to the right. Everything's great. Good. Like everything's great. Oh, forget about the poverty and the homelessness and the, 
the social unrest on the streets and the, you know, proportion of people on food stamps and the 50% of people that don't have, you know, 400 bucks in their bank account and can't afford like an emergency expense. Forget all that. Forget all that. Look at that over there. The stocks are pumping, baby. Yeah, it's good times. How long can that last? Right? We'll see, I guess. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I mean, um, I, I personally, uh, to your point, I think it's completely being used for politics, the uh, the stock market. Um, I, I think it absolutely, um, what it shows, if anything, let, let's say, let's just imagine it's not entirely rigged, okay? So let's say it's not, then it's a whole bunch of people trying desperately to fight off inflation. Mm. If, if, it's, if it's not entirely rigged. Um, but if you ask me, I don't, I don't really see, um, with the amount of job losses that there are, okay, uh, right now, if you take a look at it, right, people technically would have started getting unemployed, let's say, in, like, March. I, I've been, like, figuring this out myself. You have about, what, six to eight months unemployment? So that's going to run out in, like, August, September? You know? I think, uh, I think so. That's the timeline where the insolvency start start rolling in. Yep, and and uh, it, it's a whole another chapter in this saga, and it it could get weird. We're gonna yeah. have to wait and see, obviously. But you know, people can only that lifeline only lasts for so long. So that's right. So uh, to your point, I see people spending out there, but um, I, I think it's uh, I think the economy. I, I think the uh, you know the the economy definitely took a massive hit, and I think oh. it's bigger than they think. Totally. You I know. totally agree. But, you know, this this whole conversation we're having does beg the question, especially in the context of what the, the, the technology now permits in terms of ways to interact with financial assets. What is the necessity or imperative or demand for sound money? Like, why should we expect anybody to to to, to, to demand sound money? in an environment where you can so fluidly move between different financial assets. Like, I think we would have answers, you know, because yep. we, we realize the benefits. We see the ways in which, you know, uh, the people that control the ability to create an issue currency have this massive imbalance of power and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. But if I'm the average person, why do I give a fuck about sound money? You don't. That That's, right? that's the honest to God truth. I mean, like, let's, you know, Let's be honest to the average person. They're only going to notice when it's too late. Mm -hmm. You know, that that is what happened. I mean, that to be perfectly honest, you know, if you look back at crashes like the 1929 crash, you know, I mean, people only it's like you only know that you're suffering once you're suffering for some reason. The average person doesn't seem to really care as long as the paycheck keeps coming in. Right. You know, like I, I, so many people, it, you know, like I see their, you know, like guys that I work with too, you know, guys in their sixties and stuff like that. And they're just happy to get their government check, you know, like they're sure they get their paycheck, but look, I'm getting this extra 1200 bucks. And, and it's like, you're not getting anything. It's like, this is, this is much worse than you think. You know what I mean? Like they, they just destroyed, they just, you know, definitely crippled the world's economy and then, you know, on top of that, printed more money than we ever have before in, in a short in the shortest period of time we've ever done it. So this is like a, you know, like I don't even know how to explain it. But like to me, it's like the iceberg is so massive below the water that people just don't realize it. I can't explain it any other way. 
it's almost like the ultimate in high time preference, except it's high time preference reality, where you 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 don't accept any other reality than the one that's immediately in front of you. And you know, what could be a more high time preference than that? Versus a lower time preference reality is creating that space, stepping back and saying, Okay, I'm seeing one thing. Like what are the other processes or what kind of other picture could I understand that might be unfolding like beneath the surface, not immediately, but what kind of, what process am I in the middle of? And, uh, you know, so many, like you say, I think so many people won't be motivated to act until they're absolutely forced to, until it's a necessity. And, uh, that's, that again is the story of history, right? There's a, a few that see, uh, you know, the writing on the wall or, you know, the tanks rolling in or whatever the, the corollary or comparison is. But um, most other people will think everything is fine until it's dramatically not fine, I guess. That's right. Until un- until they are, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not discomforted, but um, kind of like, you know, un- until they're displaced, until their right. comfort levels are displaced. Yeah, I remember my dad used to tell me this. Uh, he said, a recession is when you lost your job. A depression, a depression is when I lost my job. Or when you lose your job, a depression is when I lose my job. And you know, it's kind of like that, right? It's like it's not a big deal until it actually strikes home to you. Bingo. Yeah. That's... And there's some, there's some quote in there. I, I'll butcher it, but it's something like... <laughs> They came. They came for somebody, for some, for so and so, and I didn't care because I didn't know that person. They came for so and so, and I didn't care because I disagree with that person. They came for so and so, and I didn't care because, you know, whatever X reason. And then they came for me, and there's no, there's nobody left to care. Like it's kind of that's that true scenario. It is. It it absolutely is. You know, and it kind of, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting, right? It's it's almost like a play on on groupthink in in a way, right? Because you know, a human being, like I, I always like to say, um, a person is intelligent, um, a group is not. Right. So you can put a, a an intelligent group of people together, and they will no longer be intelligent anymore because they will now all be subject to groupthink. Hundred percent. You know, so <laughs> there's kind of that too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Dude, this has been crazy. I, I can't been... believe it. I can't believe it's been almost. Well, I guess we didn't start till like quarter to, to nine my time, but time has flown. Man. Oh my god, I'm, I'm so, loving this. This is uh, <laughs> this is definitely awesome, um, John. I, I I mean, like uh, this has been such a great chat. I um, I, I guess I, I'm gonna ask you for your because I don't have any more questions or anything like that. <laughs> I'm like all questioned out. Um, or actually, wait, one last thing. You mentioned, okay, so we're going back to your, your rabbit hole story just quickly. You, yeah. talk, you talked about a securities analysis. I wanted to tell you, when I was, when I was, like, um, when, when I was a kid and I got like, to my late teens, I had gone down a similar path as you and, and had decided, okay, I understand that our money is shit and I, I need to, you know, it's like you, you almost need to find a way to make money, but not simply using your labor right? But using your money to make money. So I read a securities analysis, which um, I'm obviously, I wasn't educated to the point where I could understand most of it. Right. Okay. But it doesn't matter. I don't care. I never let that stop me. 
Um, yeah. yeah, you know, never <laughs> like I'm 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 a fool. I'm a cosmic fool. I don't care. I'll sit there and I'll go and try to read something I've never understood. It doesn't matter if I can, you know, if I can grab some kind of stardust from it. So be it. Exactly. But I also wanted to add: Did you ever read as well the Intelligent Investor? Course. Right? <laughs> so so I just want to add those two books, okay, for people that are like wanting to get into uh, – what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say, so I remember the version – I wrote, it was Buffett and was it Phil Fisher? Were they co-authoring on it or – For Intelligent Investor? Or was it – yeah. Or was it Ben it's Graham and – Ben Graham. And, and somebody else. It I was think. Ben Graham and somebody else, but I don't remember who. Right. But yes, I, yeah. I did. And and similar to you, you know, especially security analysis because that, that's a thick <sighs> book. Um of course, I didn't know what the fuck most of it meant, but I was like, "This is the book. Yeah, you know, this, this is the, the, the this is the one that everybody reads. This is the and one. This is this is the guy, and this was Buffett's like mentor. And I, you That's know, right. Buffett's pretty good at what he does, so this is where I should start. You know, and you, you, of course, you kind of almost kidding yourself. Like as same with you, if I think I can get anything from it, I'll spend the time to get it. But you know, I'm, of course, I was somewhat like kidding myself, thinking like. <laughs> I'm going to just absorb all this book and then I'll be like off to the races. Most of the time I was probably just reading it with my eyes crossed being like, what, like what, you know, a little too, a little too dense for the 17 year old John, but whatever. Yes. I was going to say it was too dense for, uh, in my case, it was the 19 year old Phil. So (laughs) yeah, man, it was, uh, definitely, but I still think it's, it's worth reading. And another one that I, I found very influential, um, not that I want, not, not that I think people should be buying stocks right now, but it definitely helps to get, I, I think it's very important to read to understand the mindset behind value investing. I think it's one of the most important things. Um, one book that really uh, helped me also was uh, The Warren Buffett Way, which was okay. Warren Buffett's book. And that's where he just goes through all of his, uh, not all of his investments, but his major investments. So he explained how he created Berkshire Hathaway. He explained, well, I shouldn't say created, essentially how he bought it, converted it, and did all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, he talks about, you know, Coca-Cola, American Express. He also talks about his worst investments, which are the airlines. Um, so stuff like that. And, and I found that very interesting and insightful. And that's what got me to read a securities analysis and the intelligent investor. Interesting. Yeah. I don't think I've read that. The last Buffett book I had and read was again, I think it was in 2005 or something, but uh, it was a blue book, very thin. And I'm pretty sure it was just a collection of his best um, annual letters to his shareholders. Oh, yes. Um, and I, you know, that was cool because you get to see slices of times and the way he's thinking and the, the, the topics and issues that he's addressing. And uh yeah, I, I found that uh, to be an interesting book as well. But you know, Buffett, Buffett's the king, and like like you said, well, he is playing the game, right? And so yes. I'm, I I kind of have a don't hate the player, hate the game mentality. And so you, you got to give credit where credit is due. Um, but I like you know, I've heard Preston Pish talk about this mm-hmm. lately. Kind of if we're in this period where Bitcoin is going to be the best performing asset as it monetizes you know fine whatever maybe you want to have the the, the a majority or a large position uh, of your savings or portfolio in that but obviously there will come a time where that will slow and you'll basically become a value investor again you know you'll you'll be looking out on the world and you'll presumably be capitalized to some degree you know the the growth in bitcoin will have slowed and you'll be looking and saying okay the, where where can i put my capital to work 
Uh, and then, you know, then a lot of those same uh, processes are going to like they're going to be of, of value to you because you can deploy a lot of this. Now, some of it will be different just given the nature of the financial system you'll be operating in. But, you know, a lot of the things about valuing comp companies and and teams and, you know, that kind of stuff. A lot of that is kind of evergreen and mm -hmm. we'll be looking out and we'll be using Bitcoin as our denominator and we'll be assessing, you know, things and and trying to trying to grow capital wherever we think is best. And, you know, that, that'll be great. You know, then the world will kind of be get maybe getting back to like a sense of normalcy again. But I, I think that's probably going to be a little ways off in the future <laughs> because we're not we're not at a point yet where you're going to want to relinquish your Bitcoin to support a, uh, you know, a, a company or something like that. I don't think. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. So, OK, now I'm truly out. So, but uh, do you have any, any uh, final thoughts for the, uh, for the listeners? Not really. I'm, I, nothing comes to mind <laughs> when I'm asked those questions and I don't have much advice, but I, uh, you know, it's awesome. only because I've been talking about it recently with, uh, with people actually on that drinks and quarantine thing. And, and uh, last night with uh, my living truth and uh, some other people, but you know, Bitcoin obviously changes people in in many different varied and beneficial ways and one of the ways that it's it's influenced and, and cuz like I don't fall into the category of the people who for whom it's changed much of my habits routines or my life like cuz I I was already a quote kind of a bitcoiner before bitcoin in terms of my approach to things but it's definitely given me a, a higher degree of confidence and freedom in one kind of being myself being genuine mm -hmm. and two in you know feeling a freedom or confidence to express myself um and of you know of, a lot of that expression is around bitcoin because i'm so infatuated with it and, and so uh, <laughs> intrigued by it but i i think that's what i'm seeing in in a lot of bitcoiners whether it's people starting podcasts or people starting to write their thoughts down and publish them publicly for the first time, mixing up on Twitter, like all these people are just starting to be like, no, you know, like I, I, my, I can share my voice. I can mm -hmm. share my thoughts and my opinions. I can put it in the mix. And that's part of me refining my voice. And it's also might even be beneficial to other people that are, are scooping it up. And um, so I, I, I just, I, just, I don't have advice, but I think that's a, I love that process that's happening. I love the, the, the changes and the ways in which, you know, uh, being aligned with this thing that is Bitcoin is giving people kind of like a little bit of extra uh, confidence to 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 engage in things that they find meaningful and to to not, you know, kind of be sheepish about being them genuinely themselves and maybe being a bit of a different thinker, whereas before maybe you were a bit of a closet different thinker. But now you have this thing that's allowing you to be a out of the closet, different thinker, you know, and, and it's something that you can say, you know, you can kind of point to as, as like we were saying earlier, that, that focal point that brings all these different disciplines and interests and understandings together and, uh, and use that uh, and, and expressing. And I think this, this is what, like, I think Bitcoin will do its thing regardless of whoever is advocating for it. Right. Um, but it, it probably matters in aggregate in terms of a timeline and speed, how fast that happens. And I think it's like great. I don't think there can be too much expression around 
any aspect of what's happening and, and what people feel about this thing, because everybody's voice resonates differently with different people from different backgrounds, different mindsets, different demographics, ages, whatever. And so I, I just love what I'm seeing, which, cause it seems that there's a, there's a, you know, a wave of, of people that are memeing, that are writing, that are podcasting, that are making videos that are just like, they're, they're genuinely used, like inspired to express because of this thing. And I think that's, uh, that's wonderful. And I just, I, I know we're going to see more of it and I can't wait to see it. Absolutely beautiful, man. Be creative, opt out, stack your sats, all the good <laughs> Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. So John, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on my podcast, man. Thank you so much for joining me. And Dude, uh, it was the, the pleasure was all mine. I uh, really enjoyed it. Can't believe it's almost been two hours, but uh, <laughs> it does mean we'll just have to do it again sometime yep. and pick up where we left off and, and go down some other uh, some other routes. But I love what you're doing, man, um, and I really appreciate the invite. Thank you, and I definitely echo that right back to you, man. Thank you so much. All right, brother. Take care. You too. I hope everybody enjoyed that discussion. I had a really great time talking with John. So his details are going to be in the show notes along with a link to his podcast. And of course, if you want to reach me on Twitter or Telegram, I am at CoinIcarus. If you want to shoot me an email, I am CoinIcarus at funwithbitcoin.com. Catch you all next time and thank you for listening. <laughs>